Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Welcome back as we head into hour two this Monday, March 29th, 2021. It is a delight to bring back Brandon Weikert as we do every Monday to get uh, his perceptions and uh, instruction on what's going on around the world. He is our uh, one-man foreign correspondent, and uh, we do some domestic things as well. He's the publisher of the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com. He is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, and he is new a newly minted columnist for the Asia Times. Brandon Weikert spells his last name, you often ask, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. Brandon, happy Monday. Happy Monday. Yes, my last name is not one of the ones that the guys at Ellis Island decided to change. I so, understand that. What is it? What <laughs> Weikert? Is that somewhat German? It's uh, uh, German, uh, Prussian, to be uh, Prussian with a P, to be specific. Yeah, because yes, because you and I spell E I and we do it wrong. We pronounce mine Liebson, yes. but you pronounce yours Weikert. Yes. You do it it's right. It's actually we, pronounced Weikert. Weikert. It's actually pronounced Weikert yeah. in Germany, but I don't. We don't pronounce. It but that you way. get the E I pronunciation right, and my family gets right. it wrong somehow, somewhere. Right. All right, brother. Uh, that was our. Uh, that was our. Uh, that was our part on Germany and Prussia. <laughs> Now, if we yes. can move on to other hot spots in the world, talk to yes. me about there's this new controversy arising, new ah. controversy. It's an old controversy that people are just beginning to pay attention to uh, over this who WHO report coming out on the origins of the coronavirus. Right. Uh, talk to me about this a little bit. Well, um, there the World Health Organization has been fairly consistent in what they have determined, which is that they were going to find that there was no there there no matter what. And so when you talk to people at the National Institute of Health, NIH, where my wife used to work, she used to work actually directly for Francis Collins, who's the director, longtime director there, uh, and Fauci works for him. Um, Francis Collins, even three days ago in Politico, is quoted as saying, it is not smart to say definitively that we know or ever will know the origins of the disease. In fact, he then went on in this Politico article to go beyond that and say it's very possible, even probable, that COVID-19 did originate from a natural source, but that it was being contained in a, uh, it's very possible it was being contained in a lab in Wuhan, and the lab was not properly contained, and it leaked out. And he said, we will never know that for sure. And so there comes the World Health Organization 48 hours later. This is the third time they've said this, in which they're saying, hey, uh, we've looked into it, and there's no there there. It probably came from nature. Well, we don't know that. There's no way of knowing that. And the Chinese uh, regime has spent the last year now stonewalling Every investigation into the origins of the disease, into the outbreak of the disease, in fact, the World Health Organization themselves, two months ago, I was on John Batchelor talking about this, the WHO themselves were complaining 
that the Chinese were stonewalling them when they sent a team uh, to Wuhan, and they never were able to get access to the source materials that they needed. Frankly, I think it's because the, the Wuhan laboratory uh, destroyed the original source material of uh, the disease, but we won't know that for sure either. And just another thing, the official story from Communist China last year, when they finally admitted that this thing was there, the disease was breaking out there, they said it came from bats. It was a naturally occurring phenomenon that transmitted from bats to humans. Of course, then they had to change the story about a week or two after, and they said, well, actually, it came from a diverse group of animals, likely pangolins, which are these disgusting little mammal things. And they said it's because in Wuhan they, they sell the, the pangolins for food at the wet market. And so they, they even changed the origin story of the disease from one lie to another, what they thought was more believable. Yeah, right. right. So we, we, right. we don't know. We Not don't just know. a bat, but a and pangolin. They, yeah, okay. Right, yeah. right. And the Washington Post now, I'm reading right now, um, you know, they're, they're now saying that, well, on the one hand, the World Health Organization should be believed because it's the WHO. But on the other hand, there are many scientists in the West who will not come out and say definitively that this thing didn't come from a lab. They're willing to say it's not probable, but they're not saying the possibility is gone. So we're never going to know. And frankly, you and I both know, given the nature of that regime and the kind of biotech experimentation that I have come on your show and talk about over the last two years that China has conducted, it is very likely that this thing came from that lab and they're covering it up. You know, on top of which, it's almost, almost, almost less important where it came from than how China dealt with it once it became released. Now, it is interesting, though. You're right. Uh, If we're in a world where we're supposed to follow the science or the scientists, two dozen, Leslie Stahl reported on 60 Minutes last night, two dozen have come out, including, you know, Clinton administration era officials Saying yeah, that's the that guy this who wrote hacking Darwin. Yeah, 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 yeah. That this WHO report yeah. is a whitewash. I mean, that's the well, way I read the interview. Know, uh, the guy who's leading it, the bald guy, Jamie Metzl, maybe Darwin, or something. Jamie Metzl, yes, that was on Joe Rogan. I, I, have, I know him a little bit. Uh, he was a senior Clinton administration NSC official. He is a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. Um, he was on Joe Rogan a couple weeks ago, and now, mind you, I got. You know, I got just sliced up by the military when I went last year to an undisclosed facility, and they asked you to give a briefing on Chinese biotech. And I mentioned to them the belief that this may have come from a lab, and I talked about the genetic coding that was being sampled and that we knew it was a chimeric disease, and that while all diseases have the elements of, of the tree of life in it, this one had a weird combination of it. It was a combination of coronavirus, obviously, but it also had strains of Ebola in it, strains of HIV, strains of cancer. There's another one I always forget now, but there's a fourth one in there. And all of those diseases were present in the genetic makeup as very strange combinations of the disease, indicating that it might have come from a lab. I got in trouble. This guy uh, who wrote Hacking Darwin, who is himself affiliated with the World Health Organization, he comes out on Rogan says the same thing I'm saying, and he's getting all the yeah. applause. And then when Rogan asked him, why didn't you say this a year ago, 
His response, you should watch the interview. His response was, well, because Donald Trump was the one saying this and we didn't want to be affiliated with it. Oh, my God. So you have to understand. Oh, my God. You have to understand. This was politicized from the beginning. Politics with science. is always bad. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my word. We could have been dealing with this a year ago, but 50% of the political system didn't want to touch it because Trump was saying that it came from a lab. And so, therefore, it's, it's, you know, verboten. You can't talk about it. But now that... He's out. We can now finally go on about it. But it's too late now. It's a year too late. The damage has been done. That's incredible. That's really that's really incredible, Brandon. You know, this is so I was talking to a a doctor, a physician friend of mine the other day. And I said, all said and done, you know, uh, what's the worst? And and he and I, I I don't know if we see exactly eye to eye on everything covid related. um, But, you know, I I would defer in that he's a physician. But in any event, um, I said, what will be what will be the aftermath, the worst aftermath of all this, the unnecessary or too harsh shutdowns where they existed, the school closures, the drug and substance abuse, any of that? And he said, you know what? He said, I think the biggest hit taken was science for a lot of reasons. A lot of reasons. And uh, one of them is that this guy who holds him out as a himself out as a scientist is admitting to politics. Anthony Fauci uh, has admitted to playing games with the American people on herd immunity, deliberately misleading us. And the thing, too, about Fauci and the rest, this is a third reason, is they said things early on without telling us they didn't know. And they didn't. Yeah. And they didn't tell us. So everything yeah. they said, a lot of people, you know, took to the bank and insured it. And then it kept changing because they, they didn't know they were it was a novel virus, but they didn't have the humility to tell us they didn't know. Well, that yes. And, you know, the also and the yet they're the only is, scientists to listen to. Anyway, right. I well, and it's very important to remember that. Fauci is not the head of NIH. That's right. Dr. Francis Collins. That's right. My wife worked for him. Yep. And I'm telling you, it's very interesting. The last year that Fauci was going out there and Collins, anytime he was doing a podcast or an interview, his, he was a lot more muted in what he, he was saying, you know, social distance and the mask and we got to get a vaccine. But he was not anywhere near as aggressive in public in saying, you know, kids got to be, yeah. you know, thrown in the basement. And yeah. you, can't, you know, he was not saying that. I thought that was very interesting. That now, is he interesting. deferred to Fauci, yeah. but he, as the big boss, was not coming out and saying this so stuff anywhere near at the level that Bush and Fauci were. Hold that thought, Brandon. I want to do that. I want to get to Iran and China and more. Started China. We'll do more of it when we come back. And a really important question. Did you ever used to say, to John Batchelor, as I was saying on the Seth Liebson show a couple weeks ago, <laughs> I'm teasing you. I love you. We'll be right back. I wonder if that's uh, Brandon and Mrs. Weikert's uh, favorite anniversary or wedding song. Did you dance to Sinatra <laughs> at your wedding, Brandon? Uh, no, no. My wife and I eloped, actually, so we didn't really do a. Uh, a, a I, I asked because that's wedding. Hugh Hewitt's favorite uh, anniversary song. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah. You know, fun fact: our new car is it's the lunar uh, lunar rock color of the uh, Toyota, so it's uh, in keeping with all the space theme in my life. Yeah, now you can write it off as a business expense because it's promoting <laughs> your book on space. <laughs> yes. 
You yes, need you need right. an accountant that thinks creatively like that, Brandon. Yes, yes, we'll fight for you. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon Weikert is the publisher of the Weikert Report, W E I C H E R T, the Weikert Report dot com. And uh, also has a uh, new column with the uh, Asian Times. And congratulations on that, Brandon. Why don't you tell us Thank about you. your most recent piece? Because I think it gets us into where I wanted to go when it comes to uh, yeah. our conversation. America Losing the Future to China by Brandon J. Weikert oh, yeah. in the Asia Times. Yes. Yeah. So basically, um, you know, it's, it's based a lot on my book. And I decided to I was combing the, the depth of Congressional Quarterly because that's what I do. I'm a nerd like that. And I found this very interesting exchange between uh, Emeril Aquilino, who was up for U.S. Indo-PACCOM command, uh, the commander under Biden. Uh, he was being confirmed. And Democrat uh, Gary Peters out of Michigan, who's on the Senate Armed Services Committee. And uh, the, uh, Senator Peters is very strong on space and hawkish on China. So it makes him unique in the Democratic Party. And he's very influential now. And he was saying, uh, you are aware, Emeril, uh, of what China has done with their uh, recent uh, Yaogan 31 satellite launch. Basically, they surprised Western intelligence at the end of February when they surprise launched a, a trio of the Yaogan 31 satellites, which are part of their naval uh, reconnaissance uh, and tracking system, very similar to a system that we have had for a while uh, the Naval Observation uh, Satellite System, NOSS. But basically, China since 2006 has been quietly building out this constellation. And in fact, in 2018, they even launched a small co-orbital satellite, what we call Space Stalkers. I think, and I say this in the article, it's a defensive satellite designed to deflect like a bodyguard any potential American anti-satellite attacks on this constellation. This constellation is very key because it allows China to track American warships operating in the Pacific Ocean, which obviously would be a huge advantage for them because they've been building out their anti-access area denial A2AD capability, which is designed to basically keep American naval and air forces outside of Chinese contested areas. So think the South China Sea, East China Sea, um, think uh, Taiwan. And by threatening American naval and air forces, uh, they force us to stay over the horizon, and we cannot deploy or interdict against a Chinese invasion of, say, Taiwan or more illegal activities in the South or East China Sea. And so I wrote this article because I said, hey, look, for the last 10 to 15 years, China has been really building out their high-tech sector. They're no longer just imitating us. They're now starting to innovate. Quantum computing, AI, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, space technology – they are, at the very least, neck and neck with us. And if you look at the rate of investment, that is going to eventually leapfrog the Americans in high-tech R&D in the next decade. Eric Schmidt, formerly of Google, he said the same thing to Congress last week. Um, our friend David Goldman, who is uh, one of the big head honchos at Asia Times, he wrote this in his recent book, You Will Be Assimilated. I wrote about this in my book, Winning Space. And so what I said is, just look at this satellite constellation. It's a microcosm of what they're doing. And everybody says, well, at the very least, China's just an economic competitor. I say, yes, for now. But as they outdevelop and eventually leapfrog us in high tech and become the basis of the new industrial revolution, 
they, that will inevitably translate, and it will happen quicker than we realize. I think in the next decade, if Trump persists, that they will inevitably in China not only compete with us economically and displace us as the dominant political force on the planet, but they will also obviously be able to threaten us very seriously in the military domain, and not just with asymmetrical power like they've been doing, but direct, eventually direct military threat. Because when you outdevelop a rival with high tech and you become fabulously rich because of it, and you're attracting more countries to be dependent upon your stuff as opposed to your rivals, inevitably your military will benefit from, from that, and you will be able to challenge at who, the group that once was the only remaining superpower. And that's a frightening world, and we're seeing it now. We're seeing it in all kinds of ways here and there, aren't we? And which makes oh, yeah. me, which yeah, right. And and it, it's hard to keep following the bouncing ball or the several bouncing balls they have tossed. One of them last week, I wanted to ask you. I pinpointed was the story that China's rover has now done a a, a massive, uh, a massively, evidently impressive. Uh, 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 coast on the far side of the moon, and that China's making yeah, noises. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. Uh, talk to us about yeah. that. They're they're making noises well, about gonna... dominating the far side of the moon. Yeah, I'll, I'll go not, one not, further. Not the um, Pink Floyd album. <laughs> Although dark, it is relevant. Dark side. Uh, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Yi Pijian, the head of China's lunar program, and I opened the second or third chapter of my book, Winning Space, with this quote. Uh, Yu Pijian is the head of China's lunar program, and he told international press in 2018 when the, the Chang'e uh, 4 lunar uh, rover uh, got to the dark side of the moon, he said, we in China's government view the universe as an ocean and the moon as the South China Sea. Ah. Now, <laughs> when I heard this, of course, I have alarm bells ringing because yeah. I'm a geopolitical guy. Yeah. And if you know what's going on in the South China Sea, where they're basically illegally taking over territory that belongs to their neighbors because they have uh, resources at the bottom of the seabed that China wants, they, and they're building illegal islands, and they're threatening to shoot down Delta Airlines, as they almost did by accident three years ago. Uh, because they're building all these missile uh, complexes there, and they've got these huge anti-aircraft batteries there to ward off ostensibly any American naval attempt to roll back those man-made islands China has built in the South China Sea. When you hear that about the moon, you start thinking, oh, my gosh, they're going to do the same thing up there yeah. that they're doing down here, yeah. except there's no one up there to stop them. That's right. It's, it's an open range That's for right. them. That's right. It's like staking out all the water holes in the desert. That's right. And the moon is chock full of mineable, rare earth minerals. Right now, China is in a huge row with the West because China's been trying to dominate the rare earth mineral market on the planet. Basically, every piece of technology built from the 1970s onward requires rare earth minerals. Well, the moon has them in abundance. The hold, asteroid hold, that, hold, the, hold that right there. Would you mind, sure. Brandon? I want to pick up on that. Rare Earth Minerals and the Far Side of the Moon with Brandon Weikert when we come back. And we will be right back. He's happy to take your questions, too. And we got to talk about this new deal around in China just made as well. And what is Joe Biden doing with India? 602 We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest, publisher of the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. 
Talk to us about those rare earth minerals again, Brandon, on the far side of the moon that China is so good at uh, or so rapidly exploiting over our interests. Would you mind? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So basically, we've known since the Apollo moon missions brought back rock samples that there are mineable resources on the moon, things like lithium, things like even helium-3, which is believed to be a more efficient uh, uh, source of nuclear fusion. Right now, we use deuterium-tritium. If I remember correctly, and I'm, I'm a little bit rusty, but I'm pretty sure that they want to remove the tritium and have deuterium-helium-3, and that creates an abundant, efficient, uh, clean uh, nuclear fusion reaction needed to power a city the size of Manhattan or Shanghai cleanly on a single canister of the stuff for about five years before needing replacement. So China's heavily invested in not only those rare earth minerals, but they're also invested, if you look at China's investment over the last five years in particular, China is really targeting the alternative energy sector for investment. And we're not talking about wind. We're talking about actual potential viable alternatives to oil and natural gas. So things like space-based solar, Things like nuclear fusion. Uh, China now has the hottest burning tokamak nuclear fusion reactor in the world as of last year. Uh, things uh, like hydropower, the Three Gorges Dam. They're looking at alternative energy because they recognize that if they, they have to import all of that oil and natural gas from the ocean, they know the American Navy right now could technically cut them off. And so they're looking for alternatives. And one of the alternatives they're looking at, believe it or not, is space. And now you're thinking about space, not just the moon, but you're talking about asteroids as well. You've got the world's first trillionaire will be coming from the space mining sector. We know that. There is an asteroid near Earth that's worth $700 quintillion. That's more than the entire GDP of mankind right now. And, uh, you know, the Chinese are rapidly building out the capability to get there and mine it because they have real tangible strategic objectives. And they're not going to be held back by politics or, you know, whatever craziness is going on at home, like here in the United States. And they're not going to listen to arguments that, well, it's too hard or too expensive to do. They're saying there's a real economic and therefore strategic reason to do this. We want to get there first because we're good mercantilists and we want to dominate that. And we want to make sure that we have the monopoly on that trade and we want to have the ability to deprive other states of access, as we do in the south of China Sea, we want to deprive other states of access to those mineable resources so we capitalize on the money and the power. And that's precisely what they're building off of, and that is part of what this, this rover on the dark side of the moon is a proof of content. And they're saying by 2024 they're going to have an automated lunar colony on the southern pole of the moon, which ha- they think has a lot of ice that can be mined and used for water for the astronauts and uh, rocket fuel as well for return uh, flights and for voyages to Mars. Uh, and by 2028, the plan is to have a group of Chinese taikonauts and now Russian cosmonauts living on the moon, ostensibly not just studying the, the moon, but also setting up mining operations to basically strip mine the moon for Russia and China at our expense. And obviously all that money they make and all those capabilities they gain will be folded into the budding Eurasian war machine that's being built between China and Russia. And nobody's really talking about this. Nobody's really taking it seriously in Washington. And we're going to get hit. 
Well, two things, Brandon. One is that was a pluperfect description and answer to the question I asked about China's interests at the far side of the moon and, of course, rare earth minerals. I would recommend, actually, that you make a YouTube. Don't do not do it again. Just repurpose this. Turn, this, turn the last sure. answer into a YouTube for the world, Brandon. That was beautifully stated. Uh, and it, you answered the question at the end rhetorically that I know me and Bill and my listeners had listening to that fantastic presentation you 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 nailed exactly the question I think we all had which was it's evident everyone in the leadership role of China knows what you just said it's also oh, yeah. worrisome to guess that maybe very few people in America do so can we pick up on that when we come back yeah. Brandon you said it yeah. as and much at the end we're not thinking about it uh, it just it dawned on me how much they should be and they are and how much we should be and aren't we'll talk more about that with Brandon Weicker when we, that was a great wow that was interesting we'll be right back Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T, author of Winning Space. During the break, Brandon, testifying to what I was saying, I got some emails and texts. A typical one reads this way. Um, that was very sobering, what Brandon just said. I hope he's talking to ours in the Senate. Not just the Senate, though, and not just ours. I mean, what you laid out, Brandon, was... The making had the makings, you know, of of of, of a Dirk Pitt uh, 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 race, the Titanic type. Uh, who am I thinking of? What's his? What's his? Well, he just I can't. Uh, think. Kostler, is it Thank Clive you. Kostler? Yes, Clive Cussler. Much yes. appreciated. Yes. Thank you. Has an Arizona My connection. My grandmother would be very proud. She's a diehard. Cussler. Yeah, 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 yes. yeah. Yes. Um, Speaking of rare earth minerals, remind me to tell you the story of my dad and Clive Cussler and rare earth minerals. Okay, there is one. Yeah. That having been said. <laughs> The question, how much of the United States is thinking about it? And if not, is it deliberate? Do they not care? No, I, I really think it's – when I talk – so it's very hard for me to get in. Nobody wants to talk. I mean, Fox News is very hard to get on big platforms because people hear space and they think, oh, who cares? It's very esoteric. But then when you sit down with me and I give you what I just gave you, Suddenly, everybody's like, why haven't we been talking to you? Why did, you know, that's why I wrote the book. And please, everybody, go out and buy it, because this is all in the book. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, um, it's more of a short-sighted thing. And really, there are some people in the Silicon Valley who are looking at things, sort of the economic side, where there's a lot of opportunity in space mining. You have two of the largest space mining firms, private space mining firms, being having been founded in the last 12 years in Silicon Valley. So you do have some movement on the economic side. Obviously, uh, SpaceX, uh, you have the rise of the you know private space startup, which I'm very hopeful of. The problem is we don't have a coordinated strategy at the political and the cultural level. So it's great what all those guys and gals are doing in the private tech sector space. The problem is, is that we do not have leadership at the political level to synthesize and say, this is all great to make money and to make sure it's American companies dominating this. But we also have to understand 
why it's important that we do things like maybe tax subsidies and, and you know, that we do public-private co-ops between the DOD or NASA and Blue Origins and SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and you name it. Because the problem is um, it, it, space is such a hard undertaking that requires long-range planning that neither our biennial or quadrennial election cycle allows for and certainly the shareholder model of capitalism where it's every quarterly cycle we have to worry about, you know, making shareholders happy. Um, it's very difficult for either the private sector or the public sector to do the, the, the operations we need in space on their own. So what, we, what I advocate for in the book and what I meet with people in, in, in the Pentagon and what I meet with people in Congress about and what I meet with a lot of these tech sectors and academics is I try to get them on the same page to say, We've all got to coordinate now because we have the capability, but we don't have the vision. And the, President Trump was the closest thing to having a vision, uh, but unfortunately he was far too controversial, obviously, for half the country. And so you're going to have to be contending then with all of the downsides politically of that. Anything that we saw with the Wuhan example, Trump says one thing, at least 50% of the people are going to hate what he says just because he said it. So we're going to have to figure out a way to get the institutions and the two political parties to form a consensus and then to start cooperating more fully with the private sector. Uh, and that's the real challenge here. We used to do this. We don't do it anymore. Part of that is because political ideology. But we've got to overcome this because I'm telling you right now, the Chinese and now the Russians, who are now no longer cooperating with NASA after 40 years of cooperation with NASA, the Russians are now co cooperating with China on space and specifically lunar development. So this is a huge Halford Mackindarian nightmare of the two great Eurasian powers coming together explicitly against America. And so it'll start in space, and it will proliferate out to other linkages being formed between these two Eurasian powers. And this will spell the end of America's dominance. It's coming now. I'm already seeing it happen in a, in a medley of, 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 of areas. Uh, Elon Musk has already said that by the end of this decade, he believes China will be, no matter what happens, the predominant economic power, and he suspects that it will be the number one place where his Teslas and possibly even SpaceX products are being used, not the United States. So this is a big price because of demand, because the Chinese government recognizes the need, and they're throwing a crap load of money, state money, at the problem. They're state capitalists. And so they can really live in the red in more than one way uh, until a technology matures and starts delivering the results to them. We can't do that as well unless we have state backing here in the United States and, of course, that's anathema to conservative, uh, you know, ethos and, and dogma. But we're going to have to get beyond the libertarian ethic and start getting back to the things that made us great in the last century. Silicon Valley was not built as a libertarian's paradise. Right. Uh, U.S. tax dollars right. were thrown into the infrastructure in Silicon Valley, and then venture capital said, aha, now we can invest. Now we can privately innovate, and that's where the real beauty happens. But the private innovation won't come until the U.S. tax dollars are used to form the base of these new industries. These new industries are very risky, and so venture capital is not going to be the first ones in. They had to wait for government, and the government's been very stingy. Meanwhile, in China, they don't have that problem, right. and the more they build, build up, 
the more they attract Western capital and Western sure. talent away from the U.S. Sure. and into China. Sure. The capital doesn't matter which government is backing them That's up. That's right. What was that phrase that, you used? They tend to like China better. Yeah, I, I can imagine. What was that phrase you used, a something nightmare? Uh, uh, Alfred Mackinder was a British geostrategist, and, and, and we talk in geopolitics about a Mackinderian nightmare of the two of a great Eurasian power solidifying Eurasia, which is Europe and Asia, the largest landmass in the world with the most amount of people, the most amount of arable land, the most potable water. Right now, they're all divided against each other, which gives the United States and previously the British Empire the ability to exploit those resources and keep everybody there divided. But you get Russia and China cobbling together an alliance that's against America. You've got now America being deprived of access to, I think it's like 25 or 30 percent of the world's uh, surface which is between Europe and Asia. That's not good. Wow. Okay. A Halford Mackinder nightmare. I like it. I wrote it mm-hmm. down. Thank you. Um, I have to take a quick break. Can we finish with completing the uh, parade of horribles, Russia, China <laughs> linking together, and now we have news that Iran yeah. and China have just inked a 25-year cooperation agreement where China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, said that our situation with Iran is permanent and strategic. Wow. Yes. Will you do that with us? Close, uh, close the show I would happily us? do so. Thank you. Touches on my next book. <laughs> very good. We'll be right back with more from Brandon Weicker. As we head to break, let me thank Solar Sandy for bringing to you portions of this show. She has such integrity. She has brought integrity back to solar. And that is the real difference between Solar Sandy and other solar companies. Not only the customer service, but she actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. With Solar Sandy, she will pay 12 months of your solar payments, any portion of your power bill for the first 12 months. And as a tribute to March Madness, Solar Sandy's promotion for the first 50 families, you will receive a $1,000 signing bonus. That's right. No solar panel payment, no power bill for 12 months, $1,000 at signing. Go to AskSolarSandy.com. That's AskSolarSandy.com. Welcome back, uh, and thanks to Brandon Weikert of the Weikert Report for being with us this hour. Brandon, I'm reading a headline, Iran and China sign a landmark 25-year cooperation agreement. Um, Not liking the way axes are lining up here. No. No, and in fact, uh, there are many Iranians who are irate over this because they're right that this basically is the regime allowing China to colonize Iran. It's a 25-year deal, $400 billion so-called development deal that will see Chinese forces being stationed on oil-rich islands, the very islands like Abaddon, that American forces have a contingency plan. If a war breaks out, we will annex that oil-rich island because that's where a huge chunk of the uh, oil for Iran comes from. With the Chinese now moving in under this deal, we won't be able to do that because we'll end up going to war with China, probably. So now we've got a huge problem here where any kind of, God forbid, military operation we may have to engage in with Iran is now going to be stymied by the Chinese. The Chinese are colonizing Iran, and the Iranian regime is more than happy to let them. And behind that shield of China, you can rest assured that the people of Iran certainly are going to suffer, but 
China is going to take more of the Middle East. And remember, we used to talk about America pivoting to Asia. Well, as America pivots to Asia, quite not very effectively, mind you, uh, China is going to swing hard to their west, which is into the Middle East. Already China's on top of this, talking about intervening and brokering a, a real peace deal, according to them, between Israel and the Palestinians. And you can bet that it will not favor Israel, and you can bet the only way the Israelis will go along with it is if they think America really is abandoning the region, which under Biden, it looks a heck of a lot like we are. Brandon, always sobering, important and sobering, and I think we ignored it, Art Harrell. So thank you for doing it. Thank you for staying thank on you. it, and thanks for being so generous with your time always. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. Until next week. I want to pick up on, uh, remind me if I don't think of it, uh, you know, the Biden administration and, and India. You had an interesting column on that. And I always, yeah. I always worry about India and the United States. And uh, you yeah. were right to put your fingers on a few things that you did. We'll pick up on that next week. But until next week, Brandon, thank you very, very much. Attorney General Mark Burnovich will be joining us at the top of the next hour. He's opened up another front of a lawsuit against the Biden administration. Good for him. I'm glad he has. And he'll tell you what, why, and how. Our number six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Feel free to give us a call on anything on your mind, and we will be right back.